You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. It's summertime, which means it's vacation time. And I wonder if you've gone on a family road trip or if you can remember going on family road trips where you would pile on a car and drive a long, long way. For a lot of families, even if they're headed to a glorious destination, traveling together is sometimes anything but glorious. Maybe your family road trips were marked by fights in the car, dangerous driving conditions, or flat-out boredom. And the resentment that comes from realizing that traveling isn't always as glamorous as it sounds. Of course, road trips aren't all bad, and helpful to any road trip is a map. Uh, Maps give us our bearings. They show us where to go. As someone new to Alabama, uh, maps have been really helpful for me just to learn where I'm at, where and what I'm talking about. Uh, So as I meet y'all, You know, it's helpful for me to get a map and say, okay, this is Muscle Shoals, where Cole Griffith is from, and this is Wagerville, where Justin Allen is from, and this is Decatur, where Olivia Pugh is from, and this is Leeds, where there's this gas station called Bucky's. Everyone talks about Bucky's. One thing we take for granted when we look at maps is that they accurately represent how each location relates to the whole. Right? There are different cities and towns that make up one whole state of Alabama. And a map is a kind of bird's eye view that gives us greater understanding of that unity, of how each part relates to the whole and how to navigate them. And beloved, that is my burden in this sermon series, which we're calling Bird's Eye. We're preaching overview sermons of different books of the Bible. So it'll be one sermon on an entire book. And my hope is to preach six or seven of these, usually over the summer. And in 10 years, we will have walked through the whole Bible. But more than that, brothers and sisters, my hope is to help us all understand our whole Bible. How it's not a random collection of different and disconnected stories, but how it tells one story about one incredible God and how he saves his people. Friends, there may be 66 books in the Bible, but make no mistake, there is one story from Genesis to Revelation, and I want you to know how each part, each book relates to the whole of that story. To be clear, there's nothing wrong with reading one verse or a couple verses. There's nothing wrong with preaching one verse or a couple verses. I did it earlier this year in Acts. But if you only read scripture at a low altitude, at zero feet above sea level, where it's just, okay, here's how this one verse tells me not to steal, and here's this one verse that gives me peace. Friends, if that's the only level you read the Bible at, a kind of flat one-to-one reading, you might miss what God is actually doing in the universe. And what's worse, you won't know how to handle stories in the Bible that really aren't about you. A lot of those stories are in the Old Testament. 
A scholar named Graham Goldsworthy made this comment about Christians and their ignorance of the Old Testament. He said this in a book called Gospel and Kingdom. Gospel and Kingdom. I can't recommend this highly enough. It's written for folks in the, few, in the pew. So I uh, commit, continue my ministry of good book recommendations, Gospel and Kingdom. In it, Graham Goldsworthy says this. For a group of people, the problem with the Old Testament is simply that on the whole, they find it dry and uninteresting. It is wordy, cumbersome, and confusing. Whatever their view of Scripture, the sheer weight and complexity of this collection of ancient books, more than three times the bulk of the New Testament, leads to boredom, apathy, and neglect, rather than deliberately thought-out rejection. And he cites that this neglect of the Old Testament comes from a serious lack of understanding the Bible as one story. But friends, as 2 Timothy 3 tells us, all, all, all God's word is useful to the Christian. And I want you to enjoy that usefulness. To be clear, beloved, I think this church does enjoy all of Scripture's usefulness. I mean, earlier this year, we listened to three sermons on Habakkuk. Praise God. Let's keep seeing what God is doing. And just like when you're on an airplane and you look out the window and you see, oh, so this is what the city looks like from above. Just like that, we're going to be flying at a higher altitude in this series throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, to see what God is up to. You can look at our updated sermon calendar on the website uh, to see which books we're flying over this year. But my prayer is that we see what any given book is doing in your Bible and how it contributes to God's one grand story. And we're going to start with the book of Numbers. You might wonder why we're not starting in Genesis. I'd like a few more years of pastoral maturity under my belt before I preach that book. But more than that, I think Numbers is a good example for us because it's a book Christians don't often visit, right? I just don't know how many of us wake up and say, gee, I can't wait to have my quiet time in the census of Numbers. And indeed, Thinking about preaching all of it in one sermon scared me, but then I saw that there is a majesty to this book. Friends, in Numbers, there's rebellion and repentance, worship and whining, sin and sacrifice, clouds and fire, spying and lying, transition and testing, fiery snakes. But most of all, in Numbers, there is a wedding of the appetite for Jesus. And we were reading some of Numbers in staff meeting this past week, and the 21st century theologian Dustin Ratcliffe said, there's so much of Jesus in these verses. And friends, though Numbers was written thousands of years ago, I think you can relate. After all, Numbers is the chronicle the account of people who have been freed from slavery and their difficult journey through the wilderness to the promised land. And I wonder if you, Christian, someone who's been freed from the bondage of sin, 
Have ever felt like you're wandering through the wilderness as you journey to the new heavens and new earth? And you're not sure where God is leading you. You're tired. You're tempted to complain. You're tempted to go back to your sin. Beloved, this is the book of Numbers. Turn to Numbers 33. Numbers chapter 33. We're going to walk through different chapters of Numbers to see the book's main point. If you're new to the Bible, chapter numbers are the big numbers and the verses are the small numbers. We're, we're not going to go in exactly chronological order through numbers because the book itself doesn't even do that. And we're not going to look at all the individual stories in numbers because, again, we're, aiming to, we're, we're not aiming to just see the individual distinct parts, and it'll be overwhelming if we try to see them all, but we're trying to see the overarching connection between them all, the main message of those parts. When it comes to outlining the book, some scholars break it down by geography, by different locations where the people pit stop. Others break it down by the generations represented. And just so you have a general idea of what we're looking at, Numbers is about two generations of Israelites. In chapters 1 through 25, you have generation 1, the people who were saved out of Egypt, but they prove unfaithful to God. And in chapters 26 through 36, you have their kids, generation two, whom God brings to the border of the promised land. And in all of this, we see the main message of numbers that God doesn't give up on his people even when they give up on him. No, God takes them to the promised land while teaching them to take him at his word. As Numbers 24 says, God is for his people. That's the point of numbers. Hallelujah. We're going to see this main point by asking four questions. Here's the first. Do you remember? Question number one. Do you remember? Look at Numbers chapter 33, verses 1 through 3. These are the stages of the people of Israel. When they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron, Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage. I love the precision. Look with me, stage by stage, by command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting places. They set out from Ramesses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly. In the sight of all the Egyptians. So, to catch us up on what's happening in God's story, God has created the world, right? That's Genesis. And then in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that through him he'll create a great nation, which comes to be called Israel. Then Israel winds up in Egypt, where they are eventually enslaved. But God uses Moses and his brother Aaron to deliver Israel out of slavery. So friends, the chief event and picture of salvation in the Old Testament is the Exodus. The chief event and picture of salvation in the Old Testament is the Exodus, where Israel exits Egypt by God's mighty, triumphant hand. 
but God didn't just rescue a people to abandon them. He didn't just save them from something. No, he saved them to something, to somewhere. He's leading Israel to a promised land, and Numbers is the diary Moses wrote of the family road trip. But did you notice verse 2? God commanded Moses to write this stage-by-stage account down. Why did he do that? I mean, you think this generation delivered from Israel wouldn't need a reminder. Uh, They had seen the Red Sea split in two. The destroyer of the firstborn passed over their their blood-covered doorposts. They had seen hail from the sky, blood in the water, frogs in the palace, supernatural darkness over the land. Friends, they had seen it all. But here's the thing about sinners and salvation. We forget our salvation, don't we? how mighty it is. Brothers and sisters, we're forgetful. And so a record of events helps us remember. And the record also instructs us and future generations. But for one thing, it just shows us our family history. We live in a culture where most of us don't even know our great-grandparents' names. But people who really dive into their family's history, they, they learn some pretty fascinating stuff. Our pastor, Cam, who's on sabbatical, leave him alone, he's on sabbatical. Uh, Cam gave me a gift before he left for sabbatical. He wrote up a timeline of ICC's entire history. So did you know, July 1, 2016, six years ago, Dustin Ratcliffe came on staff at ICC. Or July 7th, 2019, we've already prayed about it, but that's when we became an autonomous congregation. Beloved, yesterday, July 2nd, marked six months since I was installed as your lead pastor. Church family, dates in the past are reminders of God's stage-by-stage faithfulness. They also, tragically, can be reminders of our unfaithfulness. Friends, the history of God's people not only shows our family history, it warns us that history might not repeat itself. In 1 Corinthians 10, so New Testament, Paul, the author there, is commenting on numbers because he understands this is one story being told. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them, the wilderness generation did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Friends, do you remember God's faithfulness? The point of numbers. After all, it's for your instruction, your exhortation. Your holiness. Numbers has a word and a reminder, a stage-by-stage record for you. And so I hope looking at the end of Numbers clarifies the whole goal of it. 
It sets the stage so that we might better, better understand the book, which we're now in a place to begin, which brings us to our second question. Are you ready? Question number two, are you ready? Turn to, chapters, to Numbers, Numbers chapter one. Numbers chapter one. Uh, we're ready to see how the family road trip begins. A question parents often ask at the beginning of any road trip is, are you ready? Are you ready to go? Do we have gas in the car? Have you gone to the bathroom? Have you gotten snacks? Where are your shoes? Do we have everything we need to set out on our journey? Are you ready? And this is what happens at the beginning of Numbers. The people are gearing up to head out to the promised land. Look at chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. On the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the, numbers, to the number of names, every male, head by head. From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. Let's pause there. So friends, God has called for a census. I love how right off the bat in verse one, numbers like the universe begins with the Lord speaking. It reminds me of our series in Jonah where the first verse says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. You'll see this phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses all throughout Numbers. And the location of this conversation, look again at verse one, is in the wilderness of Sinai. And that's the mountain where God brought Israel to after they left Egypt. And that's where Moses received the law and the covenant. And now that they had God's word and rules. Israel was prepared to leave the desert around this mountain where they were camped and begin heading to God's place, Canaan, the, the promised land. In so many senses, beloved, the nation of Israel was forming. It was now independent of Egypt's tyranny. And the natural thing for any nation to do with its, citizen, with its citizens is figure out how many of them there are. And so God calls for a census, and the 12 tribes of Israel report their populations, and it totals up to, verse 46, to over 600,000 men representing their homes. And what this big number highlights, friends, why it matters is that it shows us that God kept his promise to Abraham back in Genesis. Abraham really did become and was becoming a great nation. Brothers and sisters, God will keep his promises. It may seem like it takes a long time. You may not see him keep his, these promises in your lifetime, but he will keep his promises. After all, the Bible starts with two people and gets to Abraham, who by the time Numbers was written, his descendants cover the face of the earth, as Numbers 22 says. Hence the counting in chapter 1. That's why the book is called Numbers, because of the censuses we see in it. In chapter 2, we have not only counting, but also camping. 
as God gives instructions for how the people should set up their camp as they travel to the promised land. I love this. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard. Standard is like your tribe's family flag. Each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. The tent of meeting is where Moses would meet with God on behalf of the people. Beloved, all the camps were to face the meeting place with God. Their entire life was to be centered around him. It's as if you would walk out of your camp and be reminded that God's face shines upon you. So early on in Numbers, there's counting and camping. There's also commissioning. In chapter 3, we see the Levites given the task to help the priests who were Aaron and his sons. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7, where we see the Levites' job description. They shall keep guard over him, Aaron, and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like the temple on wheels. It was where sacrifices were made, but more, spe- but more specifically, it represented God's dwelling among the people. But did you notice that curious word in verse 7, guard. That's what the Levites were to do, to keep guard over the whole congregation. What are they guarding the people from? Look at chapter 3, verse 10. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons. They shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Friends, there were certain sections of the tabernacle that only those whom God had set apart could enter. And so God was putting guards up to keep the tabernacle holy. Friends, guarding in the Old Testament is more than protecting. So Adam was to keep, to guard the Garden of Eden in Genesis. So guarding is more than protecting, but it's not less than that. Under the old covenant, one could not simply just approach God. Make no mistake, God had heard his people's cry in Egypt. He saved them, but just because God is a comforter and a rescuer, that does not mean God is casual. No, God is holy. Friends, do you see how there's so much more than digits going on in this book? The God who knows the numbers of hairs on your head is not just counting his people, he's caring for them. He's essentially saying, this is how many of you, are, you there are. This is how you should worship. This is where you should go and how to get there. This is how you should stay safe. Friends, do you see? God doesn't simply save his people. He gathers us up and guides us. He will not lose one of us. He knows that there are 99 of us and he will go after the one, but I'm getting ahead of myself. When it comes to God's guiding and gathering, just flip to chapter 9. I want you to see this beautiful image. 
Chapter 9, verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 15. Follow along as I read. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and at the evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Pause. If you're familiar with the Exodus, the fire and the cloud should be a reminder to you. God led his people out of Egypt in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he's doing the same thing here. Friends, Numbers 23 says God is not a man that he should lie and change his mind. He doesn't change. He didn't leave or stop leading his people then, and he won't start doing that now. The way he leads us now may be different, but lead us God still does. Going back to Numbers, Numbers 9 goes on to say, God would lead the people by a pillar of cloud or fire, and if God stopped in a certain location, the people stopped there. Whether they stopped for a day or a month, they followed God's lead. Look at chapter 9, verse 23. Chapter 9, verse 23. At the command of the Lord, the people camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. In other words, the people obeyed. The family road trip was starting off well. This is a happy note about the people's obedience. And it is a consistent refrain in the first 10 chapters of Numbers. If you want to see for yourself, just take some time this evening to look at chapter 1, verse 54, chapter 2, verse 34, chapter 3, verse 16, chapter 4, verse 49, chapter 8, verse 20. Friends, the people obeyed. Yay! But here's the rub. The people weren't home yet, were they? They were just getting started. If only their obedience lasted as long as their journey. But the people showed themselves to be a lot like us, weak, fickle, The World Games are coming up in Birmingham. Prayed about that earlier. I wonder how many athletes will start their their competition strong and finish poorly. Friends, it's sobering how easy it is to start a race well and how hard it is to finish well. And that is exactly what happens with the people in the book of Numbers, which brings us to our third question. Question number Three, are we there yet? Question number three, are we there yet? I mean, this is the quintessential question of any family road trip, isn't it? Mom, dad, are we there yet? No, my child, we literally just pulled out of the driveway. And we smile. But it is, in fact, No light matter to God that the people complained. 
Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. Ooh, parents, don't you know it? Can't you relate? And now to be clear, the Lord's anger is always righteous, and there are parents who sinfully give into unrighteous anger, but still, you get the picture, right? The people are marching from Egypt to Canaan. This is not an overnight trip with two or three pit stops. No, the people and their kids were walking thousands of miles outside, camping outside. So, confession time. I don't know that I've ever been truly camping. I've done some glamping in my days, right? Glamorized camping. But I've never been camping, camping. Why not, Pastor Isaac? Nature's so wonderful. Because I like my bed. I don't like sleeping on the ground. And so if I were an Israelite, I would be complaining. And so would you in these circumstances. But... This is what God had for the people, and he was using it for their good. You see, beloved, some of y'all are so focused on getting to the end of your journey, getting through your trial, that you forget that God is shaping you on the journey, teaching you something in the trial. And that, my friends, is its own reward. God was teaching his people how to believe his word and trust his goodness toward them. And the evidence of that kind of trust is gratitude, not grumbling. But grumble, the people did. I want to be clear. Scripture commends voicing our complaints to God in a godly way, bringing bringing him our sorrows, pouring out our hearts to him, as Psalm 62 talks about. And this is good and right to do. But Scripture condemns grumbling at God. What's the difference? Well, again, I think, that, I think parenting is helpful here. There's a way my daughter can come home and say, today was really hard. This other kid was mean to me, and I lost my favorite toy, and she's bringing genuine grief to me. And so I console her console her. But there's another way. She can complain when at dinner, this is just a hypothetical, she says, this meal sucks. I hate this food. That kind of complaint doesn't get compassion. It gets correction. Friend, if you're here despising your life and despising God because of your life, as if you are merely someone whom the universe has failed because you think you deserve better, a better job, a better spouse, a better friend, a better house, whatever it is, if that is the narrative in your mind, if that narrative in your mind is producing a low-level, though constant discontentment and grumbling, I plead with you to read the book of Numbers and see how seriously God takes that sin. 
After all, grumbling can sound like one of those polite sins, right? Like, please pray for me. I grumbled again this week. Oops. Friend, if that's your attitude, all you're showing is that you've not read numbers or that you've forgotten the point of it, God's faithfulness to us. Do you remember? Are you ready? Are we there yet? Beloved, tragically, the grumbling and the attendant judgment of God is what characterizes chapters 11 through 26. And we saw this in chapter 11. We see it again in chapter 14. Let's look at the sin of grumbling in chapter 14. Numbers 14, turn there. Here's some context while you're turning there. The people are headed to the promised land and Moses sends some spies ahead of the people to go check it out. And the promised land is exactly what God promised it would be in Exodus chapter three. The spies tell Moses that the land flows with milk and honey. But there's people in the land whom the spies are scared of. They don't think they and the rest of the Israelites can beat them. Even though God is on Israel's side. Even though they saw the exodus. Like these are the people who saw the Red Sea split in two. They walked through the walls of water on either side. Even though they knew all of that, they didn't think they could win. Friend, if you're thinking, oh, if God would just show me a sign, then I'd believe, think again. Beloved, even though God had promised to bring the people safely into the land, the scaredy-cat spies interpret their circumstances through the lens of fear, not faith. And so they effectively say, God can't bring us in here, and neither can we. And so what do the spies do? They lie to the people and give them a bad report about the land. They don't tell them about the milk and honey. They're just like, we'd be doomed if we headed that way. They say it's terrible over there. How do the people respond? Chapter 14, verse two, all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose another leader and go back to Egypt. I mean, can you imagine? You got milk and honey and God ahead of you, and you say, no thanks, I'd rather be a slave again. I wish we had time to read the rest of the account, but I'll just summarize. God hears the people's grumbling. He gets ticked off, and he says, Moses, I'm done. I'm destroying these people. But Moses intercedes for the people. Your gospel taste buds should be wetting right now. He says, God, don't do that. Then your name will be slandered. 
The Egyptians will hear about what you did and say, wow, some, some God, he saved his people just to bring him out there and kill him. And so God listens and God relents. But God also judges. He says the grumbling generation, they don't get to go into the promised land. But their kids, so God goes downstairs to children's ministry and says their kids, the very ones they were worried about, the weaklings, I'll give them the land. I'll bring them in. But this grumbling generation is sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Friends, this is the crucial event in numbers. Circle, underline, star chapter 14 in your Bibles. The people are coming to the land, but because of their unbelief, the first generation has to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Chapter 15 has a lot of detail about sacrifices. No surprise there. There's been a lot of sin in chapter 14, so that would be followed with a lot of atonement. Atonement basically is a payment for sin. It's an offering to make things right. These sacrifices would be described over and over again as a pleasing aroma to the Lord, not because they smell good, but because they satisfied his judgment. But do the people change after those sacrifices were made? Do they learn their lesson? Do they repent? No. They don't. You see, the people would camp and set out on new legs of the journey, but they were still enslaved to old, sinful ways. I love how Pastor John Onuchek will put it. He effectively said, it only took God an instant to bring Israel out of Egypt, but it would take him 40 years to bring Egypt out of Israel. And so the story goes. I'll let you read, read it on your own, but chapter 16 records Korah's rebellion, maybe the most gruesome scene of judgment for grumbling in the Bible. But I want to end with another chapter, one that shows that the people couldn't save themselves, change themselves, heal themselves. They needed to look to another, something outside themselves for forgiveness and life. Which leads to our last question. Question number four. Will you forgive them? Question number four. Will you forgive them? That was basically the question Moses asked God on behalf of the people. Turn to Numbers 21. Numbers 21. We're going to simply look at verses four through nine. The people are setting out again, following God. Chapter 21, verse 4. Chapter 21, verse 4 reads, From Mount Hor, the people set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. 
Oh, the family road trip. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They're referring to the food God miraculously provided for them on the journey. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from among us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bidden, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. These are the full of Jesus verses Dustin was talking about from staff meeting. Do you see, beloved? Do you see why you shouldn't ignore the book of Numbers? Do you see why the message of this book isn't 10 tips to grow in gratitude? Beloved, what Numbers is trying to show you is that like these wandering Israelites, you need something more than a change in your life. You need someone to save your life. And that's because like the wandering Israelites, we've all sinned against God. We've all been impatient. We've grumbled against God and those he's put over us. We've doubted his goodness, questioned his plans, scorned his gifts. We've listened to the serpent, that old deceiver from the garden in Genesis. And all of us have felt the bite of sin's curse. Our willful rebellion against God, our sin is a sign that we have a sickness, an infection that we can't cure. It's our sinful human nature. All of us in this room have it. And if it were left to us, none of us would escape it or be healed from it. No, we would suffer God's judgment, not just of fiery snakes, but of eternal fire. God be praised that Jesus came. And like Moses, he interceded for us. Jesus went between us and God. Friends, Jesus is the priest we need. He is the sacrifice we need. The one who could truly be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And Jesus' sacrifice pleased God because he was the perfect offering. He never sinned. Friends, have you ever noticed that Jesus' life and travels follow the pattern of Israel's life and travels? So Israel comes out of Egypt, and, Matthew, and in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus has to come out of Egypt. Israel goes through the Red Sea, and in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized, going through the waters. Israel then goes to the wilderness and is tempted, and in Matthew chapter 4, so is Jesus. But here is the key difference. Oh, where Israel failed. Jesus succeeded. He never doubted God. He never grumbled. He lived the life they should have lived and the life 
you should have lived. And yet he died the death we deserved, the punishment we deserve for our sin. To use the language of numbers, Jesus was bitten by the curse fully so that we wouldn't have to be. Friends, Jesus was the one who was lifted up on the cross in the place of all those who trust in him. We who are sick with sin look by faith to the work, his work on the cross for our healing. This is why the scriptures say, by his wounds, we are healed. Friends, do you see? Numbers is about Jesus. Moses and the priests point to Jesus. The sacrifices point to Jesus. The bronze snake points to Jesus. This is how Jesus interpreted this account. Katie read it to us earlier from John 3. Jesus himself saying, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Friends, growing in gratitude is great. And if you're a Christian, I hope you do that. But the primary call of numbers, just like the call of your whole Bible, is not about you improving yourself. It's about Jesus giving himself for his people. In John 5, Jesus says the scriptures bear witness about him. In Luke 24, a passage we'll keep coming back to in this series, Jesus says the law of Moses is about ultimately about him. Jesus, 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 beloved, believe in Jesus. Look to him and his perfect record of obedience that he freely offers you that you might stand before God. And his substitutionary death, he suffered when he was lifted up on the cross that you should have hung on. Friends, look by faith to Jesus afresh as your only hope before God, your judge, this evening. Look to Jesus and live. I love that the call of this passage is to look to Jesus and live. The Christian life is about new life. Just like Jesus had new life when he was raised from the dead on the third day. And he ascended into heaven. And we who trust in Jesus don't sit here now with our hands folded, staring at the sky, trying to see Jesus. No, we, filled with his spirit, follow him by faith through the wilderness, through many dangers, toils, and snares as we journey home. But make no mistake, though Jesus ascended to heaven, he hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't stopped leading us. And one of the chief evidences of this truth, brothers and sisters, is that table. It's a reminder for us, brothers and sisters, do you remember? God is so good, he gives his church a tangible, digestible reminder of his grace to us. Like a good father, God feeds us as he leads us home. But we may not have a pillar of cloud or fire, but we have something arguably even better before us as we journey home. The body and blood of our Savior represented by this bread and juice. After all, beloved, God didn't save us with cloud and fire, but with his own flesh and blood. Can I get an amen this evening? And so we come to the table, to the feast, 
not grumbling like Israel did, like Israel did about the meal, but thanking God he provided it. And so this meal is for folks who are looking by faith to Christ and trusting in him alone for salvation. If that's not you, I encourage you to do two things. Number one, make it you. Friend, if you're feeling the sting of sin, the bite of of the serpent, look to Jesus by faith and be saved. And if you won't do that, at least do this. Number two, come talk to us. So if you're not a Christian, we'd ask that you'd not come forward for this meal, but come to us after the service. There'll be pastors at the door. We'd love to talk to you. And for all of us, who've been freed from the bondage of sin, but may still feel its bite. For all of us who are looking to Jesus for life, come and eat. Look and live. Keep looking and keep living. Let's pray. Father, just as you fed your people in the wilderness, you feed us as you lead us home. So with thankful hearts, we come to eat as we follow you and look by faith to the one who was lifted up so that we might live. It's in his name we pray.